is Glenn Washington, the host of Spooked, a Luminary original podcast. Luminary always believes in amplifying black voices. And this month, they've curated a selection of their favorite episodes to share with you. If you like how this episode sounds, you can listen to more by going to luminary.link slash black voices. That's luminary.link slash black voices. It stirs you. It makes you move. That is a noise that I've heard my entire life from black folks. That's what keeps everything else in rhythm. From Luminary, this is Stu Talks. Your mama saying, "Mm mm-hmm. You don't tell us you love us. You say, what you talking about? I raised you, didn't I? I'm grateful I don't have your problem. It's sensitive because I am not African-American. Love you. You're an amazing, powerful, beautiful woman, but I am completely homosexual. I'm Hannah. And that's Leela. You'd be okay with your sons wanting to be cops. That's not what I said. <laughs> okay. Lift every voice and sing Till earth and heaven ring Ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let us resound loud as the rolling sea. What is a sound of blackness for you? Honestly, it's the opening bars of Lift Every Voice and Sing. Ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. I grew up in a family that taught us very early on that you stand for that anthem, no matter where it is. And I remember being in a majority white space. I remember being in a place where I was one of the few black folks there and they were playing it and I just stood up and you could see sort of the furtive glances around the room. Like, are we going to stand? Do we not? And I thought, look, my mom and dad said you have to stand. So it is a moral responsibility. So I stood up and then slowly the other African-Americans stood up and then the whole community stood up. And it was just, it was this moment where I was so affirmed, but also recognized that this is a song that you know, reaches beyond our community, but it is so centered in the question of, of who we are, especially as black Americans. Lift every voice and sing Till earth and heaven ring Ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea.
So we've been talking to a lot of people about blackness and moments that define who they are. And Lilo, when we were talking about who we wanted to hear from, we knew it was Stacey Abrams. Uh-huh. And it's not just because all eyes are on her right now as a possible vice presidential candidate. It's because there's something different about Stacey, you know, the way she's doing things. Yeah, she's not about making things digestible for people. Yeah, she's, it's, like, it's like she's just bringing her blackness with her, you know, take it or leave it. Stacey told us she grew up on the poor black street in the middle class side of town. This was in Gulfport, Mississippi, because her parents wanted her to go to the good school. The middle class school, so while there were, it was integrated, most of my classes, especially when I was in the gifted program and then as I moved through junior high school and into high school, most of my classes were with white kids. Then it was time to go to college. Did you want to go to a black college? How did you choose Spelman and how did, how did that come about? My mother tricked me into Spelman College. Of I, course. <laughs> when I got ready to go to college, my mother said that she really wanted me to, she was concerned about my social development because I wasn't shy, I was just very reserved. And I didn't have a lot of friends. I wasn't, again, I wasn't like socially awkward. I was just, it it sounds more like I was a loner, but I I just, I didn't spend a lot of time hanging out with other people. Partly Mm -hmm. it was my parents' fault because of five brothers and sisters. After a while, everyone's just exhausting. But (laughs) my mom's, (laughs) my mom said, just apply. You don't have to go to Spelman, just apply. So I applied. But every other college I applied to was in the Northeast. And then I was admitted, and she said, well, you don't have to go. Just go visit. And I went to visit, and two things happened. One, I saw Morehouse College. I wasn't allowed to date until I was 16, so I was a junior in high school before I was eligible to date. And the first time I saw a school of all black men who were fairly good-looking, particularly to someone (laughs) who had been in a drought situation for most of her life, was a very compelling reason. To consider. Eyes were opened. <laughs> Eyes were opened. Very yes. much open. <laughs> and and how did you feel there? Well, you were, you know, did you feel a, a bit intimidated? Were were you thinking about the worst case scenario going there? I mean, for to go to all black school after you know where you grew up. What was that like? I was terrified. My very first day at Spelman, I met my roommate, lovely person. She was from Detroit, and she was much more facile with colloquialisms than I was. And so, no, I, I wasn't just Southern. I was from Gulfport and did not hang out with a lot of kids who were versed in black colloquialisms. And so she said something to me and I could not tell if she was being friendly or threatening me. And I finally I was like, Rakai, I don't know what you're, te- what you're saying. And so by the end of the second week at Spelman, my new friends had put together a black to a black urban dictionary for me. Oh my goodness. Uh, which oh my goodness. I think they meant both as a mo- moment of mockery and as a moment of help, but I I will reach for any dictionary I can di- I can get. <laughs> so how did how did you t- how did you take that though? I I mean as part of me was offended, of course, but it was also And embarrassed because I didn't know. There were things I hadn't experienced, music I hadn't listened to, 
communities I'd never engaged. And, and what was so tremendous about Spellman was that you hear this notion of being black as a monolithic experience, but it, when you strip it down to black women, when you remove almost everything else, you realize just how deeply diverse we are. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my four closest friends, one was from Arkansas, one was from Buffalo, one was from Indiana, and one was from Detroit. And just the distinctions between them, they weren't all friends with one another, but I just, I got to experience so many different ways of not only being black, but being a black woman. There were, there were conversations about color, conversations about language, about history, about experiences. I mean, I'd never met wealthy black people before. You know, you met people who were better, who lived on the good side of town, but these were like women of wealth. And that was something mm-hmm. that was startling and a fair departure from my own experiences. I'm wondering, Stacy, do you remember any of these blackisms that your friends had were trying to teach you about in this in this little manual that they gave you? Um, do you remember any of the things that I I don't. I mean, you got to remember this is early 1990s black colloquialisms, mm-hmm. and so yeah. I, you know I, I did not hearken to many of them. It just helped me understand what people were saying. And if you said them now, um, it might sound very strange. In exactly. These days. <laughs> so let's not even go there. I mean, part, um, part I, of it was I, I didn't, I didn't try to change myself so that there was a moment where I thought, well, let me just memorize all of them and try to say them, and I sounded like someone who was an escapee from an in living scholar, color skit, and so I realized, eh, I'm just going to be as much me as I can be, but I need to be able to embrace those around me. And so I read the dictionary. I just didn't try to become uh, bilingual. And so you're coming from from kind of this idea of, of monolith to this world where there are different kinds of black. And, you know, here on this podcast, me and Leela talk about that a lot. She's African-American. Uh, my family's from Sudan. You know, our backgrounds may be different, but you know, the, the the blackness is what brings us together, but we are different kinds of black. When you found these different kinds of black, did you know then where you would fit in? Like, did you feel, which kind of black did you feel like you were? The extraordinary part about me being at Spelman was that I realized I didn't have to pick one. That I was mm-hmm. friends with Allison because she taught me to love jazz. And I was friends with Renee because she taught me to love Yo-Yo Ma. I became friends with Mindy because we shared this deep affection for poetry. And Michelle and I vibed off of the fact that we both love physics and wanted to study science. Camille would make me go out and talk to humans even if I didn't want to. (laughs) And so in each of those spaces, I realized not only how diverse and intricate our blackness is, I realized that it didn't have to be categorized, that my opportunity was to fit into any space I could. And it was reminiscent of my time as a child, which was because I didn't quite fit into anything, I decided I could fit in anywhere. And it made me more protean, I think, in my understanding of my blackness and what it could mean for my capacity to to be. Right. And, you know, I'm just so happy to hear about your, uh, you know, that you share that experience about Spellman, too, because I also, um, you know, was had the opportunity to got into Spellman in Hampton, and I actually went to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, 
But it was also, it just brought up this idea that I thought, I just thought maybe I, I would feel really out of place, you know? Um, and I never really talked about it because I felt, you know, I always felt a little bit embarrassed that I, I, I felt a little bit intimidated. And so to hear, you know, how that can turn into like a really beautiful experience for you, it's just it's really inspiring. I think no matter where we are in the diaspora, there are always moments where we don't feel like we're enough. We don't feel black mm-hmm. enough. We don't feel down enough. We don't feel courageous enough. And part of my underlying mission is to know we are enough. We are more than enough. We are more than sufficient for the moments we face. But we can't see that unless we take the time to know it and talk about it and acknowledge it's the secret we all carry. And until we put it in the open, people are going to continue to suffer under its weight. And so you were meeting these, you know, these, the, I love hearing about these, these girlfriends of yours. And while you kind of vibed over the poetry and Yo-Yo Ma over here and going out to meet people, at what point did the activism start for you? And was that in college? Because, you know, while you were talking about you didn't, you're, you're an introvert and you don't like to talk to people, you know, at that point. At the same time now, you know, you are this powerful woman who talks to a lot of people, right, at the same time. And you have this persona about you. And um, so I'm wondering, when did the activism start and was it, in, is it, was it in college? It started as early as I can remember. My parents believed that it wasn't enough to see that there were problems. They expected of themselves and of their children that we were going to work to fix them. The first protest I think I did was with my parents and my siblings. We, uh, during um, apartheid, we protested at a shell station. And, you know, it took 20 years before I would use shell gas again. I'm fine with them now, but Mm. (laughs) for a long time, it it stuck with me. My mom and dad became Methodist ministers, and they were admitted to Emory University to study at the seminary. And that's what brought us to Georgia. My parents led an anti anti-gay protest. So there was a protest march that would go down the center of Peachtree Street in Atlanta in front of our church. And my mom and dad organized this multiracial church that we attended to stand outside holding signs that said, God loves gays, because they were so offended by this church that was leading this anti-gay protest. They raised us to also go out and serve. We would go to soup kitchens and homeless shelters. We did vacation Bible school. If there was a poor person or someone in need, my mom and dad believed we were supposed to be there, in part because it was of service. And it was also a reminder to us that our own working poverty status did not exempt us of responsibility. And so activism has always been who I am. I think it became sharpened and more forward-facing when I got to college, both because of the Rodney King um, riots that happened or the protest, and simply because I was able to refine how I wanted to live that activism. It wasn't as Mm -hmm. much the direct service my parents did. For me, it was also about how do you bring the politics of how government fails to do its job to the people, and then how do you design 
responses that help make people's lives better. So activism was something that was kind of part of your core, part of, you know, who you are. And Selena Montgomery is also part of your core and part of who you are. We want to know about Selena Montgomery and your writing. Do you still write romance novels? I wrote the very first one in 1999 uh, during my last year of law school. It was based on my ex-boyfriend's dissertation. He was a chemical physicist, and we'd broken up in college, but we stayed friendly, although reading his dissertation, I called him and I was like, oh, this is fantastic, and you know, I could make this amazing book out of this. And he poo-pooed the idea, and I'm like, this is why we broke up. You have no imagination. Uh, (laughs) And so (laughs) I wrote the book I intended to write, but I was in school with a number of people who'd been in publishing, and to a person, they warned me that Publishers weren't going to publish a spy novel by or about a woman, which is what I was writing, and that there was no way a publisher was going to publish a novel that was helmed uh, by a black woman as the main character. And I thought, you know, that's just silly. So I thought, well, I'll make my spies fall in love. I can publish it as a romance. And I'm going to write the character I want to write because it was the story I wanted to tell. Someone bought it, and then they bought two more, and then another uh, publisher came to me, and she bought number four, and then I found an agent, and he sold the last four, and then I became minority leader and started a small business to do financial capital for small businesses, and I got a little distracted and haven't been able to get back to romance writing. A, a little distracted. <laughs> Just a little distracted. That's an understatement. <laughs> And I hear very regularly from friends and family that I owe them the third book in the trilogy I was writing when I stopped writing romance. What was it about writing about Black love that you were drawn to? I mean, part of it was imagining. I was not good at dating. I, I like doing things I'm good at. And after a few failures with dating, I decided I would just write about the person I needed to meet and hope that there would be some sort of magical manifestation. But it was also exploratory for me. I got to write about these women and men in these situations that I never got to read about when I was younger. I read very widely, but as you know, black literature, especially pop fiction and popular fiction, didn't come into great quantity until the late 1990s. So when I started writing, you had Beverly Jenkins, you had um, Brenda Jackson, you had a handful of black women who'd ever been able to break through, but you didn't have these stories. And I wanted to tell these stories. Like I have a book about an ethnobotanist and a forensic anthropologist. I have one uh, about a data scientist. Like I wanted to write about these strong, beautiful, intelligent people like the ones I met at Morehouse and Spelman, like the ones I could never find in popular fiction, which is not to diminish the legitimacy of other stories told, but it never reflected the expansiveness of what I knew we could be. 
and mm-hmm. I got to kill a lot of people, which is very cathartic. <laughs> <laughs> and those covers, man, those those romance novel covers, whoo, spicy. Yes. Again, imaginings are good. They're they're a lot of fun. <laughs> You're a writer, you're a scientist, you, you're, you're a politician. And I guess that's the part that I want to ask you about. You know, a lot of us, if we're being very honest, you know, a lot of us have, have lost faith in this system. A lot of folks, especially after the 2016 elections, have lost faith in democracy, at least as we have it here in the U.S. And a lot of people feel like, you know, I, my vote doesn't count. My voice doesn't count. It's rigged anyway. You know, we hear all of this stuff all around us. What makes Stacey Abrams keep the faith in this system that has let so many people down? Because I've seen the system make progress. I think about the fact that my great-grandmother, Mumu, that her grandparents were slaves, that her parents were sharecroppers, that my parents were the first in their families to go to college, and my mom the first to go to grad school. And I got to stand to be governor of Georgia and become the first black woman in American history. My younger sister is a federal judge, the first black woman to be a federal judge in the history of Georgia. I've got these extraordinary siblings who have been able to accomplish so much more than my grandparents ever imagined. And that gives me faith. But I also have a younger brother who is one of the most brilliant and kind people I know who grapples with mental health issues, with drug addiction and with incarceration. And I cannot abandon the system because that would mean I abandon him. Because whether we like it or not, the system is going to find us. And it's going to demand of us either fealty or it will demand surrender. We can push back and we can try to fight it, but ultimately we have to fix it. I refuse to concede that evil and mean will win. I don't know that I will be the one to get it done, but I know my obligation is to try. And the most efficient way to fix a system is to either build it or break it. And so Hmm. I try to break the things I think are wrong and I try to build what I think can be good. And I do my level best to support those who will make better possible. And I try to do it across sectors because I also recognize that it's not simply government. It is what government does. It's what the nonprofit sector does. It's what the for-profit sector does which is why I've tried to build skills and capacities in each of those sectors, because there's a naivete to thinking that if you fix one, you have fixed it all. These systems Mm. are interdependent and they, their tensions often exacerbate the challenges for those who are the most vulnerable. And so it was in college that I realized I wanted to master understanding each of those sectors. It's why I went into business. It's why I, set up nonprofits is why I worked in government before I ran for office because Mm -hmm. the responsibility, if you want to fix the system 
is to understand all of its pieces and to be able to navigate it. And much like the, you know, the urban dictionary translation I got, my mission is to be able to translate all of these languages into a common lexicon that helps communities take care of themselves. Hmm. I mean, but again, I'm going to be the skeptic here because of the huge disappointments that we've that we've had, I think, as a country, in our communities. How do you how do you convince folks to have that faith, like to share that faith with you? And I guess this can be a nice segue into your book, which is coming out in June. Our time is now talks about um, fighting voter suppression, which you are renowned for. How how is our time now and how are you going to convince folks who are totally checked out from politics because of what's going on that their time is now? Our time is now begins with a conversation of voter suppression. But if it ended there, I would have accomplished something, but not enough. It also talks about the importance of identity politics, how we should not let anyone strip us of our right to demand improvement and to demand the obstacles to our opportunity be acknowledged. It talks about how important the census is because it's an instrument that is used both for our suppression and could be used for our uplift. There is a belief that I hold that our system can work, but I would never try to tell someone to believe the proof of their eyes. I know where I come from. I know what my parents faced. I know what I grappled with. I don't have faith in the system. I have faith in us. I have faith in our ability to move the system towards our needs because it has happened. It has been slow and it has been painful and it has been filled with failure, but it has happened. And the moment we abandon our faith that it can be better, they win. Voter suppression exists not because, not simply because they don't want us to vote. They want us to give up the hope that voting could change things. Because in a democracy, voting is your single strongest power. And if they can convince us not just that the system is broken, but that it should be abandoned, then they can run amok. And so mm. I'm just too obstinate to let that be so. But I recognize my obligation is to not just tell people, trust me, it's to be the person I've been, which is why I'm candid and why I tell people the truth. I answer hard questions. I don't shy away from it. And I, I don't just say, here's what we should be. I do my best to say, this is what this can look like. And here's your part. And here's what I can do. And here's the reality of what you're going to face. But if we keep trying, we will keep chipping away at it. I'm curious, um, Stacy. if I know our people, I know that you walking down the streets of Atlanta, that there's got to be so many people coming up to you saying, there goes our next vice president of the United States. There she goes. We see her, look at her crossing the street. You know, I'm just wondering, how do you respond to that? I've gotten this question more than I think anyone else has because the speculation began last year and I've tried to always address the question in the context of the moment. When it first started it was when Vice President Biden was considering running 
And there was speculation that I might run with him on a ticket. And I said, no, you don't run for second place in a primary, meaning if there's a primary, the mission should be to elect the standard bearer. At the same time, although people tend to miss the comma that was in that sentence, I said, but after the primary is done, I'd certainly be open to a conversation. Since that time, when I get the question, I have always responded uh, affirmatively. And I've gotten a second question that a lot of folks don't get, which is a question of my capacity to do the work. There are those who have pushed back and said that I'm being aggressive. And I don't see it that way because if we take this conversation all the way back to the beginning, the expectations of black women can be so low as to say that if there's any hint of doubt or deflection, it confirms the worst expectations and the worst assumptions about who we are. I am privileged to navigate among spaces, but I'm always very conscious that I stand in a space for black women, for women of color, for young women, for people of color, and they may not all look to me, but I know I see them. And so my responsibility is to never mistake self-effacement for humility. Self-effacement says, oh, no, I can't. Oh, no, I shouldn't. It's being coy. Humility is saying, I can. I'm not the only one, but I can. And that's what I try to say. I have no question that Vice President Biden will pick the right partner for him. He knows what the job requires because he's done it. He's got a very smart team around him, and they will vet and they will understand what makes the most sense for this election and for that administration. I do not have any expectations and I'm not so presumptuous to assume that anyone will pick me. But if I get the question, I don't get to hope that people have read the last 10 times I answered it. I don't get to wish that they had read my bio. My responsibility in that moment is to do what I've always done, which is to be as candid as I can because my parents raised me to know that the truth matters but they also raised me to understand that there are some communities where the truth never gets heard because no one ever tells it. And I want to be an exemplar of who I am and what we are all capable of, because that's why I stand for Lift Every Voice and Sing. That's why I embrace blackness in all its forms, because we cannot be what we cannot see. And if all we see is the diminution of who we are or a dismissal of our capacity, then that's what we'll continue to believe. I mean, you have, you, you, I, as so many black women do, but especially I'm just thinking of, you know, the responsibility that, that you feel you have, the responsibility that you're carrying within your community um, as a leader. I mean, there must be times when Stacey Abrams is just tired. You know, she just wants to she just wants to to wake up, put on her favorite jam, have her favorite music playing, have her. And now I'm just really curious. What is it like when Stacey Abrams is just chilling? What are you doing? What are you listening to? What are you nibbling on? Who are you calling? Well, look, what are you um, reading right now. I am in the midst of I, I tend to read three books at a time, just so my brain gets like a really interesting workout. So I'm reading a biography of Huey Long, the former governor of Louisiana. 
I'm reading The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin, who is this amazing sci-fi writer who I love. And I am finishing up a book called Oxymoronica. So it's basically a book about words because uh, I love words and I think they're fascinating and fun. And then I watch a lot of TV. I, Ooh, like what? Oh, I watch... Ooh, Real Housewives? No, I do not. I don't actually watch uh, reality television. Okay. I prefer scripted shows. I, I like people to do what somebody tells them. <laughs> like, I, I enjoy a story arc. <laughs> and the only exception I have to that, I love cooking shows and cooking competitions. I love to cook. It makes me very happy. Uh, and so when I nibble, it's usually something... If I've had time, which I have had more of, though not, not as much as I would have imagined while sheltering in place, I go and cook. Like I made a salmon wellington earlier this week, and I recently made a roasted spring pea soup, which was quite tasty. Nice. Yum. Mm. Love it. Stoop Talks is a production of Luminary. Our team includes producer Natalie Pert, editor Casey Miner, sound design by Chris Hoff. Executive producer is Leela Day, music by Daoud Anthony, and production assistance from Jackson Musker. Ma'asalama. Peace be with you. enjoying what you're hearing join us over on luminary we can hear more great episodes visit luminary.link slash black voices that's luminary.link slash black voices